The modern question seems to be, what do I believe? And it's the wrong question. Yes. The, the question is, what do Christians believe and what have they always believed? Hello and welcome to uh, Why Are We Talking About Rabbits? Rabbits, those are the things on the internet that just reproduce like crazy, nutty memes, dumb news articles that just go around the internet and everybody gets all wound up. We are not talking about rabbits. We're talking about heavy things lightly. Today, we talk to Jonathan Jackson, an actor, a singer, a writer, an artist. We get him because we have beloved friends at the Orthodox Arts Festival, an international festival out of London in England. And they have connected us with Jonathan Jackson, who turns out is just like my best friend in the whole world. He doesn't know that yet, but I've decided. Jonathan Jackson today. And just so you know, five-time Emmy Award winner, uh, has a band called The Nation. They're excellent. Played with Echo and the Bunny Man for you guys from the 80s. He's a published author. He wrote Mystery of Art, a most intricate and delicate and wonderful book. I love it. And just a fascinating character living in Ireland on today's Watar, Jonathan Jackson. What's what's been happening in your soul that that this is is it an overtaking? Are you becoming sort of overtaken by this this old world Christianity? I'm an Orthodox Christian too, as I think mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Is it is it is it something you can't almost control anymore? It's not really in your head anymore. Is that happening? Uh, that's a, that's a really great way to put it and a great question. I mean, that, that's a very artistic way of looking at things. Um, I think there is an element of that. Um, there's an element of that that takes place. Um, I'm currently reading, um, a book of essays, uh, by C.S. Lewis about storytelling. And so because of that, I might end up uh, quoting him a few times because it's Absolutely. in my head. But um, one of the things that he was talking about in there was um, what happens to a writer when um, the first images uh, come into his head about writing a story. And he talks about the difference between the author and the man mm-hmm. and how what happens to the author is this kind of overtaking. And uh, the way he describes it is it's it's almost like being in love. Yeah. Um, and so the way that you ask the question uh, completely connects with that. And, and there is a sense in which um, y- you're so overcome with, with something, with, you could call it beauty, um, you could call it uh, divine grace. There's a lot of things we could call it, but there's, there's an experience, a glimpse, um, a longing that takes place and nothing else really satisfies at that point. And so y- you almost do become, you're a participant and a victim of it. Right. You know, like St. Porphyrius talks about being wounded by love. Right. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, there, there is, I mean, at the same time, I, I don't want to overstress that because um, I, I really do believe in free will. I, I don't understand how it works. Right. 
Right. But I, be, I believe it exists. So somewhere within, I mean, I guess you could look at it like, you know, um, did my, my love for my wife overtake me to the point where it's like, I have to marry this woman. And in, in one sense, I would say absolutely yes. But not all senses. I know what you mean. Yeah, you were still yeah. participating in the yeah. process. Exactly. I love that. That's got to be the best metaphor. But I mean, look, it's happened to me. I always say this on this podcast. It happened to me with reggae, with with the whole Rasta reggae mu- music mm-hmm. movement. It now, are they the same though? Is it the same overtaking? Is it the is all love the same when it gets you your wife's love, the love of Christ? I don't know. I I don't know. What are you experiencing? What what are you seeing? Because you're making beautiful art, and it's inspired by your faith. But is it your faith? It's weird, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, it's an interesting thing because I wasn't raised uh, in the Orthodox Church. I had no uh, contact um, or or conception of the Orthodox Church growing up all the way until I was in my mid-20s, I would say, maybe even late 20s. And um, at the same time, there was a lot of Orthodoxy that I was living uh, just by virtue of, you know, whatever is a remnant uh, in the Protestant circles or Catholic circles of orthodoxy, which, you know, obviously there there still is a lot there. Um, you know, reading C.S. Lewis uh, all through my teenage years was an incredible uh, preparation and foundation to just be rooted in some kind of historical Christianity. And um, this sense that what humanity apart from God calls progress is not necessarily always progress. Oh, this is great conversation. And and C.S. Lewis had that very deeply in his soul. I mean, he he even said, you know, oftentimes progress is turning around uh, and, and, you know, going back, if you're going in the wrong direction, progress means turning around. Right. Um, Which which really implies something interesting because if you – if in fact progress is turning around, then it means the thing you that that you put in the ground, the goal you put in the ground was pride-based. It wasn't actually even real. And in that sense, you were actually degenerating or devolving. Right? Yeah. Isn't that intense? Yeah. Yeah. That's that's I mean, and you know, we have uh so many biblical examples of this, um, which to me are profound. I mean, they're they're on a level of um, revelation and, and poetry and uh, things that can still penetrate the soul. I mean, when we contemplate this incredible wild story, this insane episode and event of, of the tower of Babel, right. you know, I mean, that's so, it's so massive and cosmic, this, this idea of this ancient, you know, like pretty much prehistoric people building this tower up right. to, up to heaven thinking that, you know, Man can reach God, you know, of, with his own genius. And um, and then what happens? And the story of Noah has a lot of those those kinds of things going on. So, um, well, it, it, yeah, it's completely relevant to me with, with what, you know, things are happening right well, now. Well, in that sense, it's that he- heliocentric sense of time, which it's repeating while it also is moving linear. It's mm-hmm. both, right? And in that sense, it's all relevant, which is really a cool. That was something that happened to me when I became Orthodox. Mm-hmm. And 
And I heard you talking about how you became Orthodox. You you went to a church and were said told to leave, and it, there was a, there was a voice right that said like I really shouldn't be here. Yeah, sir. It wasn't a person that told me to leave. It was uh, it was a thought that was extremely potent. Right. I I went in chasing a woman, which is ironic. God used God knows how to work. Yeah, me. I'm a fool that way, and uh, a really nice person who said, uh. Uh, she's Ethiopian and she was going to a Russian church and I just wanted to date her more than anything. Yeah. She said, meet me at church. I didn't know what I was getting into. And it's funny because there was a voice, an actual voice uh, of a babushka because I came in and sat down. I came in and just plopped down, kind of waiting for church to be over to talk to this woman. Yeah. <laughs> and then... I got yelled at by a babushka who her voice was, it wasn't actually saying this it was like, no, you should leave. You don't belong here. But I did belong because I waited for the girl. Right. But she didn't say that. What she said is get up before God, get up before God. And so yeah. long story short, I was drawn there for one reason that wasn't the reason at all. I don't know what happened to this, to this woman. Um, and then sort of overtaken. And in, in, in all of that cosmic nonsense, that stuff that was going on, all that nonsense, there was, right, truth. But yeah. how do we see it? Is it art? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know. If, if we look at it from the perspective of, uh, of therapy, let's say, you know, which is a beautiful thing that, that orthodoxy uh, in its tradition emphasizes divine therapy. But if we take, if we look at it as Christ is the physician, he's the great physician. Mm. And so the dynamic of uh, salvation and the spiritual journey is, is um, different experiences of healing. Um, and from that perspective, um it, a physician doesn't give the same medicine to everyone at every moment. Um, so, you know, for one person, um, an experience of beauty with, with, uh, with a woman, you know, might, might lift them out of the materialistic view of the world enough um, where all of a sudden their heart glimpses that it's like a revelation. I, I, I would die for this person. And what does that mean? And where is this coming from? Hmm. You know? um, other people, it's, it's um, you know, witnessing uh, self-sacrifice in someone else. Um, it could be music. It could be works of art, a, a painting. I mean, there are these stories. Um, my wife was telling me of um, the Italian goalkeeper, Buffon, Luigi Buffon. Uh, oh, she yeah. was watching a yeah. documentary about him and he had struggled with depression. I haven't seen it, but what she told me was... Um, the only thing that started to shift something for him was uh, when he started going to these museums, these art museums and looking at paintings and experiencing uh, beauty. Yes. So, um, yes. you know, uh, that's an indication. Yeah. Yeah. Dostoevsky says, that's it. Just, it'll, it'll save us, but we have to be attentive to it. I, I think his words that he wrote in The Idiot, and it's so interesting to me that it was almost in passing because the main character never even said it. Um, another character says, oh, you know, the prince thinks that, uh, or says that beauty can save the world. It's like this real, you know, throwaway line almost. And yeah. it's incredible to me that that was almost like a spiritual atomic bomb just yeah. You know, it's just, it's still reverberating and, and we're all kind of unpacking it. We really um, are. Yeah. Especially in this postmodern age. 
Mm. It's like it weirdly has traction where I think a hundred years ago he was more seen as sort of a dreamer, a dummy. Yeah. It's so yeah. interesting. So you you have all this happening to you in your soul or spirit, mind. We have a lot of non-Orthodox who pay attention to this. So it's kind of cool. I, I really like uniting worlds. It's it's a joy. Yeah. It's kind of like our work, but but you're out there. So you're an accomplished actor. We could we talked about it in the intro. Uh, you heard some of the things you've done. I, I, I've shared it with folks, and so and you have this band, this beautiful band, and you you've worked with like you know big time players. W- what do they think of you? How do you integrate it? it this new world sort of um, art scene with your old world mm. burgeoning Orthodox life. I I don't really know how. Um, how other people see it. Um, I feel like that's become more and more irrelevant as I've gotten older, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it, it is interesting because the the dynamic of my, and I, I don't like the word career, really, because it, it's, it's, it doesn't feel like a career. It's really just my life. I mean, I started working um, in the arts when I was 11. Wow. So um, I, I, I was not conceiving of it as a career. I was just like, this is what I'm doing. It's what I'm exploring. And um, so, but I had a really powerful encounter with Christ when I was 12 years old. And I was, I've been living in LA for about a year. In retrospect, I, 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 I think, and I feel that um, it's probably, I probably had this encounter because I was living in a a very intense spiritual environment working in Hollywood, you know, as a young kid. Um, So I think there was some kind of grace uh, that happened at that time. Otherwise I probably would have just gone completely off, off the rails. Um, But because of that, um, my whole uh, time working in the arts, uh, I had a, a deep connection with Christ. So I've always been wrestling with how I mean, in a personal way, how do I um, live my faith? How do I incorporate my faith into this work of art, whether it's, you know, an acting role or, or a, an album that's being made or whatever it is. And um, becoming Orthodox really has just been this really seamless continuation of that whole journey. You know, it's felt like a fulfillment of the same uh path and the, and the same journey and longing. Um, so there's not a lot of tension there right now for you. Well, there's tension in the practical, um, you know, because the, the state of things in, in, in the world and the industry is uh, there's a lot of things being made that I don't feel in any way, shape or form connected with artistically. Right. You know, I, I would have no interest in, in being a part of, you know, X, Y, or Z uh, projects on multiple levels, uh, some of it is just purely creatively. It feels uh, so um, small. Uh, I use the word small, small when I yeah. show my girls. I'm like, that's kind of small, don't you? Yeah, think? <laughs> yeah. And um, and then obviously, there's a lot of you know spiritual tension that comes into those things as well. But um, so practically speaking, there's a lot of tension. Spiritually speaking, not so much because. Um, you know, and, and this is something I, I explored in uh, The Mystery of Art, uh, the book that I wrote about a lot of these questions and tensions. And one of the things that I said in there is that I, I really do believe that Christ and the arts are destined for each other. Wow. Um, 
how different is that from your Protestant upbringing? Or, or was it? Maybe it wasn't, but I know that in terms of tradition, like the Calvinist tradition, I, I'm a history guy, yeah. that definitely was something on the outside. The arts were mm-hmm. pretty nerve-wracking for a lot of the reformers. <laughs> yeah, different? you know, it's, yeah, it's interesting. I, I was not really a part of the uh, Calvinist tradition much. Ah, um, okay. My parents uh, left the Seventh-day Adventist church when I was about eight or nine years old. Um, and then we kind of meandered and wandered about in a churchless, uh, you know, world for a while. And, but my parents were very devout. So even when we weren't going to church, we were, we were having, you know, whatever version of church we could come up with at home. Okay. So, you know, the faith was always there. And then we kind of got into the more charismatic world, uh, for a while, all of a sudden, you know, TV screens and rock bands started creeping in and, sure. you know, um, you know, and in that sense, there was a bit of art going on. Um, and there was a bit of, it's almost, it's interesting. I haven't really thought about it, but liturgical art was the most frightening. Um, interesting. <laughs> you know, because, uh, I mean, growing up, I saw bands like U2 who, you know, um, were, uh, speaking about Christ and faith and, and artists like Bob Dylan. I mean, even, you know, Van Morrison. I mean, obviously if you get into the weeds, it gets more complicated with sure. what, what they're actually talking about um, at, at different times of their lives. But, but anyway, I would look at those things and be inspired by that and say, wow, look at this, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's artists out there speaking in some kind of parable form, some kind of way that's inspiring and reaching people to some extent. Um, but when it came to liturgical art, I mean, the first time that I walked into an Orthodox church, um, well, this was maybe the third time, uh, but it was, it was the main time I, I walked in alone and, you know, I, I had this intense, overwhelming feeling come over me to saying, just leave, get out of here. And, you know, that was, I was surrounded by icons and, and candles, investments, and yes. what I consider now is just absolutely beautiful and it's windows into heaven and, and, right. you know, being in lockdown here in Ireland for seven months and not being able to go to a church was, was really difficult because it's so healing and um, therapeutic, you know? Um, so... I think somehow I, 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 I drifted into this place and C.S. Lewis helped as well, because here was someone who was, you know, uh, very uh, profoundly uh, focused on his faith. And yet he was making literary works of art and Dostoevsky as well. I, I latched onto him as a teenager. I mean, Me I read too. the idiot when I was maybe 15. Um, so I was seeing artists that were connected with, with right. Christ Um so I think somehow I, I was, uh, I was grasping for that. Yeah. I think there's a perception now again. So on, on, on our pod and really in our work with our nonprofit, there's, there's this old world, new world divide. And basically we place it in the enlightenment. This is 17th century, 18th century shift toward rationalism. And then, it's not to say the whole world falls apart, but what changes is the paradigm. And then the paradigm produces different types of art. Maybe if you're judging by the Orthodox standard, less artistic, I don't know, we can talk about it, but 
if you go back to the old world, what, what new worlders tend to think is that the old world restricts you from being creative. Mm-hmm. But I found as I became more, I read Dostoevsky in a mud hut and Peace Corps and Mali. Mm-hmm. And what actually happened was I was freed as I grew closer to orthodoxy to be more artistic or whatever that is, to be more creative. It, it was, a, it was a, a, a really interesting contradiction. It was a paradox. Yeah. Or the more I was obedient, not that I'm that obedient, Jonathan, let's not put that out there. I try. But as I became more obedient to the tradition, to the, to the oral tradition, which is in the fathers, and of course, the biblical mm-hmm. tradition, I weirdly got more creative. Yeah. Do you find that? Is that something happening? Yes, I do. I completely find that. I mean, I, I really, and just speaking, you know, personally, I feel more at home as an artist in the Orthodox Church uh, than I've ever felt anywhere. Wow! Wow! Because the the ethos, the vision, the patristic vision of Orthodoxy, is is um, it's kind of fathomless. I mean, there's no end to it. We we could live multiple multiple lifetimes and really never come to the the end of it. I mean, I was very drawn to. I remember that you know the priest who catechized us, Father John Strickland, who's who's become a, a really great friend. Um, he was just on the show. I had him was on he? two two episodes ago. Oh, I, that's amazing. He was my sister's priest for a long time. Oh, yeah, I, yeah, I love yeah. Father John. He's uh, he's he's wonderful. Yeah. He is. Um, but uh, where were we going with that? Because then I just lost my thought about being freed up in, through the tradition. And oh yeah, yeah. So in in one of the early you know times when we were uh, in the inquirers class with Father John, when he started first introducing us to apophatic theology, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, sort of at the very very beginning of orthodoxy um, is this this you know, sort of negative theology, meaning, you know, we just, we, we begin by saying that we don't know. Okay. And we That's important for people yeah. who listen. This is, yeah. this is the type of theology practice in the East mm-hmm. is first, I don't know. So now let's go from there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And the paradox, you know, orthodoxy to me is this, this divine paradox. You know, if, if we, if we look through the heresies of, you know, the last 2000 years, um, particularly the first thousand years where most of them are hammered out. Um, it's always that the Orthodox church comes back to accepting a paradox, um, accepting a mystery. And so that is in absolute contrast to the enlightenment right. worldview, you know, where I as man can rationally figure this out. Mm-hmm. And, and orthodoxy is more, it's like the soul of a poet. The poet goes, eh, you can know, but you will always not know as you're knowing. Huh. <laughs> you know, the closer we get to God, the more, because he does reveal himself. Right. Um, Christ this is, is imp- important. That's a great point. It's not that it's a muck. It's not that it's darkness. You're not making stuff up. I have good friends who are like, well, you're just making that up. Yeah, you see God in the face of a smiling baby. I'm like, no, but <laughs> it's an actual interaction. It's an, it's an actual participation as I know it, but it's not mediated through math. Yes. Or, or the material, right? Right. Well, I mean, again, it's 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 yeah, it's both and. 
Yeah, I mean, that's a know, fair point. Yeah, because God, God is God is the ultimate mathematician and the yeah, ultimate yeah, artist yeah. simultaneously, and and yeah. he is he is God is spirit, as Christ says. You know, worship the Father in spirit and truth, and yet um, he comes to us. The unseen God comes to us and is incarnate, and therefore he he's he can be touched. He can be heard. Yeah. Um, and this is this is the for me the revelation of the sacraments is that the incarnation of Christ continues uh, mystically that we can actually participate in this sacramental reality we can touch we can taste we can hear we can smell with the incense and so our faith this unseen mystery that yes we will never fully comprehend has come down to us in a manner that is so humble and so loving that that we can we can gaze upon the face of god and not be and and not die and not be consumed right right um that's very inviting for an artist because the artist is going to create in in the real world where there's actual material and he's invited to as a as an old world eastern christian you're invited into that world of of majesty enchantment right Mm-hmm. This is a new word that's been flying around. People really like this word now. It's it's a postmodern word that works for the Orthodox too. It's an enchantment. It's like this yeah. spiritual enchantment. Well, isn't it isn't it a f- wonderful thing? Um, you know, if if this is true, that we can continually be on the threshold of actually participating in divine grace and partaking of the divine nature and never exhaust it. <laughs> I mean, to me, that vision of heaven is the most beautiful, you know, a static vision of heaven where it's like, I have my ticket. I made it. I made it. And now everything's perfect. And I've arrived um, is, is, is so different than the, the vision of the fathers uh, in, in the East, which is we will forever spend eternity um, growing and participating in the divine nature. Right, right. Which which really speaks to the infinity of us, which is crazy. So yeah. this is Basil, I mean, uh, uh, Athanasius, where God became man so man can become like God. Whoa, I am participating in the infinity, in the eternal. Wait, that's partly me? Whoa, now, for an artist, you know, I'm not much of an art. I, you made your, you, you make money doing this. I'm trying, but our work in on the nonprofit world, we we try to inculcate and, and we try to participate in all these ideas by serving the poor, by saying it's not really us offering anything. It's us off it being a a part of an eternal relationship that starts in Mozambique or in Sierra Leone where we do this work, but it's artistry. This is what I really love. This is why I'm so happy to have you on is there's really not a place where it's not artistry because artistry is the dynamism of relationship. It, you're relating to the wood, you're relating to the screen or as an actor, you're relating and participating with the, with, with the, um, with, with the character. Yes. And so in that way, if we all just loosened up a little bit, sorry, I'm on a rant, but if we all just loosened up and <laughs> and just realized like all of my life is an attempt to be 
to create beauty. And beauty is a participation in the dynamic relationship that's given to me today with you. Now, the screen is a conversation we could have about what does the screen do to that dynamic participation? Maybe it mm -hmm. cuts it down or something. But I find so much of it, we just lost the art conversation somewhere along the line. So it it became like over there, you know? It became like over there. We do life here and then over there is the art. Well, we killed mystery. Um, and so you're not really going to have a whole lot of uh, transcendent art produced right. from a society that has killed mystery. Um, what you will have is um, a very rationalistic, materialistic uh, world that is yeah. birthed with offshoots of occultism because humanity has to have mystery. Um, so if you don't offer the true, the true mystery in Christ, um, people will be drawn and attracted to um, all forms of, uh, you know, um, false uh, spiritualities, you know? Yeah. And so I, that's really what the way that I'm seeing things right now is we have this um, incredible machine, um, you know, that's being built. Uh, C.S. Lewis talked about it in the abolition of man. And oh, that's my favorite of, book of him. Yeah, it's, it's an incredible, incredible book. Um, uh, there's another uh, incredible writer, uh, Paul Kingsnorth, who's talking about this a lot. Um, he's doing a lot of incredible essays on this as well. But there's yep. there's this machine being. Uh, I mean, it's already. <laughs> It's already formed rather elaborately, but it, it's not just practical. It's, it's a state of, of, of mind uh, yeah. in society as well. So you have this machine world, uh, which is making us less and less human. Um, uh, and again, the materialism, consumerism, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then you have this, this extreme irrational, uh, spiritualism that has no um grounding you know again the 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 true um mystery in christ is that we are made in the image of god there's a grounding to these things there's and especially in the east there's an ascetical uh self self-denying uh uh reality to the whole thing as opposed to you know, a lot of the more mystical occult stuff is 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 really like a a, a sensual self self gratifying right. uh, path towards deification. Right. Um, and I, you know, I really have a. There's a lot of artistic heroes that I have that have really That's gone. One of my questions. Yeah. Who are your artistic heroes? Oh gosh, there's so many. I and mean, we've spoken of a few Dostoevsky's sure. among the top, uh, C.S. Lewis, definitely. Um, you know, musically, I would say, uh, Van Morrison, Leonard yeah. Cohen, Bob Dylan, um, U2, Echo and the Bunnymen, um, Peter Gabriel. Um, right on. Yeah. I mean, in terms of directors, I'd say Tarkovsky, um, Terrence Malick. Terrence Malick. Let's talk about that for one second. Did you see his last film about the German? Yes. Uh, uh, the Hidden Life. Wow. Yes, I did. I I saw it twice. Yeah. Um, what did you think of that? That he 
he he made me remember the beauty of filmmaking. I, I remembered. Yeah, I mean, for me, uh, Terrence Malick is. Um, I think he's coming the closest to any filmmaker uh, in our times, uh, at least that I've been exposed to. Um, me too. That is actually connecting into um, the the true beauty and mystery of. Yeah. Uh, of of traditional Christianity. Um, you know, I, for me, he doesn't, his works are not polemical. They, they're not a form of preaching. Right. Um, but they are a form of revelation. For me, uh, A Hidden Life was like, it was, honestly, it was like watching a miracle. That's how I felt about it. Wow. Um, to bring the inner life of, of a soul and this is not just in a hidden life, tree of life, um, into the wonder or to the wonder. I can't remember how it's titled, but a lot of his, you know, of these films. Even even Thin Red Line, which is how I got started with him. Thin mm. Red Line is a war film, but. You yeah, you know, I have that on my list. I actually haven't seen it yet. Go go check uh, it out. And I know it's I. I really beautiful. It's, it's, it's one of those things where I have to set aside time uh mentally because you know it's like i know how much this is going to what i'm going to experience and 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 you know so it's been sitting there on my list and i was like i can't i'm not ready yet I <laughs> you know, know i gotta I know. I have to be in the right the right frame of mind but you have kids how many wait how old are you tell us about your family for one thing you, mm. you're married with kids in ireland yeah yeah um yes i've my wife and i we've been married for 19 years um we haven't 18-year-old son, 16-year-old daughter, and almost 11-year-old. Oh, your kids are older. Okay, I feel a little better. My kids are older, too. I got a 19, 20, 22, 27, and 34. Yeah, 30. And so how have they all taken to your your orthodoxy? Have they come in with you, or is it a, is there tension there? How is that going, if you don't mind saying? Or maybe that's yeah, not... No, we can no I don't mind talking about it at all. Um it was a, it was a family journey, really. Um, you know, my, uh, our youngest was, uh, just a year old, uh, when we came into the church. So we were all baptized together on Holy wow. Saturday. Um, you know, in some ways my kids gravitated and, and assimilated, um, easier than I did and easier than my wife did. For instance, you know, the, the icons were a bit frightening to me, um, you know, being raised in a different tradition. Mm -hmm. It wasn't frightening for the children. That's a good point, right? Yeah. I mean, they loved it. They walked into the church and they were just like, wow. I mean, they, they and they could just, and when they were young, especially, you know, at uh, the church in Los Angeles, there, were, there weren't any pews. It was a very traditional, you know, mm -hmm. kind of in the Russian tradition. And they would just, they would find a place and lie down. Yes. Or, you know, yes, yes. there was such freedom. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I recognized that, you know, at the time I thought, wow, look at, look at the way the children are responding to this. Um, I had to be fortified by, you know, three to four years of reading Christian history and, and reading some of the fathers of the church so that I knew that my, um, my discomfort with this, you know, in particular, let's say the, the icons or the mother of God or priests or any of these things, my discomfort 
was exactly that. It was my discomfort. Mm -hmm. Um, And if I hadn't have been exposed to Christian history, if I hadn't have been um, challenged by the writings of the early church fathers like St. Ignatius and um, St. Clement of Rome and on and on it goes, um, I, I, I might have just reacted based on, well, this doesn't feel great to me. This is not resonating with me. And I was really challenged with that. You know, I, I can't remember where I, I read about it or thought about it for the first time, but it was, it was like a lightning bolt that um, hmm. the modern question seems to be, what do I believe? And it's the wrong question. Yes. The, the question is, what do Christians believe and what have they always believed? <laughs> this is so interesting. But just speaking to that tradition, now, I, don't, I don't mean, you know, the telephone game. I'm, I'm talking about that encapsulated within each generation's passing to the other, encapsulated within that passing is actual truth. And, and so if it's true, then, uh-oh, what's my responsibility to it? It's not to decide what I believe, it's to decide if it's true, right? If it's true. <laughs> yeah, it's a very humbling business. Yes. Uh, you is. know, really, because um, it's this constant uh, challenging and saying, well, I mean, I'm, I'm nothing and I'm nobody. And, and it really, um, the other thing that came to me, you know, was uh, this idea or this question, you know, Again, because the Protestant world, especially in the last couple hundred years, even maybe 80 years, but, you know, with this kind of emergent church, um, uh, charismatic world, um, it's this constant reshaping and reforming and and just never ending uh, uh, forms of this. And I remember thinking at one point, what if what if God gave his church a relatively fixed structure so that over the centuries, the church could persist in changing man instead of man always trying to change the church. And as soon as that somehow landed within me, it became so clear. And it was like, I'm supposed to be the one changing. You know, I, I don't want to give, I don't want to give my life to um, constantly trying to reshape Christ's church. Uh, It's, like I said, it's a very humbling business, but it's also really freeing. I this is I think what we were saying earlier. There's there's freedom in not okay. This is Jonathan. I know you agree with me on this. One of the most terrifying events, both in my life and then I was a teacher for many years before we did this new work. This first things. One of the most terrifying events for me, and then I did it to kids, was to say, "What are you gonna do when you grow up?" Or better, what are you going to become? Yeah. The power, the danger in that word, become, to come into being, implies you're not already a being. Yeah, yeah, that's and right. This, and second thing is, I, I'm 12. Like, <laughs> like, that's a pretty big question. And so what happens is, is I search the, the horizon of contemporary life for people who get the most playtime. Who, who get the most airtime or who have the most money or the prettiest cars because I'm 12. Yeah. And then I tend to pursue that thing because that makes everyone around me who just asked me this deafening question. Yeah. Yeah. It makes everybody suddenly happy. 
It's a very powerful and dangerous question. It really is. You know, I have a, a, a great little moment um, with my daughter when she was probably, I don't know, maybe six years old. And I don't know if, if we asked her this or if someone else, I don't remember the context, but at some point the question was asked her, what do you want, what do you want to be when you grow up? And at six years old, she just paused and she goes, I want to be me. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I was like, yes, that's it. Hi, here's a question that I, I promised I would ask based on some conversations with my, with my family. Um, Cause we, my, we've got actors. I've got a jazz singer at Juilliard right now. I've got a, a ballet dancer uh, from the governor's school. One of my kids went to, to Cooper union. She's a painter. It's just like weird stuff. And so here's, here's one of the questions is you have been in the art world as an actor. I think you do less of that now, but you did a really nice thing recently with Joseph de Hesychest. So you're an actor on some levels. There are some strictures against acting in the old world. There's this narrative that to go out of yourself into someone else is sort of a a type of possession or a lack of being yourself. Or there's this narrative that acting can be bad. What, yeah. what do you do with this? Well, there are some specific canons in the old world. Exactly. Um, yeah. But um, there's also, I think, canons against people being lawyers. Um, but um, you know, it's it's it's, it's a facet. <laughs> I could spend some time on that. that was putting great. that out there, but <laughs> no, there. Uh, okay, so I just picked this up not that long ago, and I haven't I haven't uh, read it yet, but it's. Um, this is ancient, you know, Greek plays and things, right? So I pick these up from time to time. And oftentimes it's the introduction I'm, I'm the most interested in. Um, but one of the things that I discovered here was um, it talks about one of the most famous uh, festivals was in celebration of the god Dionysus. I just happened to have the pile of books here. I wasn't planning on talking oh, about it. Oh, good. Okay, that's neat. Um, uh, which took place every spring. Um, uh, Dionysus... Uh, Dionysus, I think that's how you say it, mm -hmm. was a god whose territory was originally not in the city at all. Okay, well, maybe I won't quote it, but basically the idea is that, um, oh, okay. Yeah, okay, so lastly, he is a god whose worship can produce states of ecstatic possession, right. loss of individual identity in the communal dance, and so perhaps may serve as a divine model for the actor's assumption of an alien personality, as well as the audience's temporary identification with the masked figures on stage. Uh, and anyway, it keeps going. So the context of acting in the pagan world it was a spiritual act of actually uh, becoming possessed and channeling uh, a God, in which case, you know, in the Christian tradition, St. Paul's very clear about this, that they're not, they're not the, these gods are demons, right? So this is a, this is a, something that is completely uh, antithetical to Christianity. So in the old world, if someone had become a Christian, and was going to go to the theater and perform, they were actually participating in this pagan uh, rite of worship. There was no uh, ability to perform a work of art that was not linked with a, an actual possession and worship wow. with another God. Wow. So of course you have to say, no, you can't do that, you know? Um, so I, I was, 
I was fascinated to learn that. Um, uh, and I think that's, that's quite relevant. You know, and one of the things that you see time and time again throughout the history of, of Christianity is this, um, this attempt and uh, a reality of, of sort of baptizing yes. certain realities. Yes. And, um, and I think that, I think this is one of those areas that um, has been and continues to be uh, in some sense baptized and sanctified, you know, Christ himself, imagine the incarnate logos, the son of God comes down to the world. And one of his primary ways of talking to us is, is stories, is parables. So that tells me that, that he is, um, he's okay with stories and he's okay with, you know, uh, with parables. And um, in the baptismal rite, Christ is called the excellent artist. Um, so I think there, there is a way, you know, there is a way to, um, to perform these things. And again, that search was really what, uh, propelled, uh, writing the mystery of art was yeah. trying to wrestle with these things. Will you do this for us? Because it's nice that you're in Ireland. Most of the folks listening, although we have a, a European contingency, some people, quite a few people listen out of, um, Holland and then we're getting an Australian connection. So tell us about the funk that is the modern world and COVID and Ireland. How, how, how's it going there? Like, how heavy is the funk? Like, how hard is it? Um, right now, it's 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 been it's been difficult. Um, it's a bit paradoxical, I'd say, because um, Ireland has been one of the the harshest countries in Europe when it comes to lockdowns and things like this. So um, we had maybe a four or five day window around Christmas time where they kind of opened up travel a little bit. But other than that, there was a good six month, seven month period of complete lockdown where you couldn't go more than uh, five kilometers, you know, away from your home. Um, and that was extremely difficult. Yeah. Especially moving to a new country, um, you know, we we happened to move right in the middle of COVID. And, you oh, know, it's recent. You're moving June okay. June 2020. Yeah, um, there was a small window open, and you know, things were already in motion for the move before COVID hit in March. So we we just kind of had to keep going. Um, but it's been very difficult. Um, you know, the the other side of it is that we live out in the country more. And so there's a lot of beauty, um, you know, that just the Irish countryside is very healing and I'm very thankful for that. Um, but it's a tough time. It's a really, really tough time right now because there's so much division around things. Um, uh, and then just restrictions of travel and seeing people. Um, Can you level, still play? Yeah. Is, is your band in nation? Are they playing? No, well, we've had our tour, you know, postponed three different times, yeah. um, and we're we're scheduled to tour in the UK and Ireland, um, May uh, of twenty twenty two, so May next year. Okay, uh, but it, that's been <coughs> tough. I mean, yeah, it's. I you know I live in South Carolina, and the South Carolinians, you know, they're good at the middle finger. They've been doing it since the Civil War. They're good at it, and and I have. I have a lot of love for that, but also sometimes it's tricky, right? Because yeah, it's a hard way to live like that. But sometimes you can't tell. 
we had whole moments here where I didn't even realize there was a pandemic and then people get sick around you and then you're like, well, there's a pandemic. And then at other times, because of the media, it's nonstop infiltration into your world. And and then you it's it's kind of a me problem at that point because I have to turn it off. But you're seeing that too, right? You must see Yeah, I mean the general disposition for me with with things like this um and i think in general again uh or maybe i haven't mentioned it but it's it's looking for the royal path um which is something that you know in orthodoxy uh tends to be emphasized a lot which is you know the instinct should not be towards fanaticism uh in in either direction with anything it it should be following Christ should make us uh, more and more human, more and more approachable. And um, now having said that, again, because the royal path is a balance, it's not going, it doesn't mean we're supposed to remain passive all the time. It doesn't mean we're supposed to not speak the truth and stand up the truth, you know, even if it comes with massive consequences and whatever. And more than ever, I think in, in our times, we need people who are willing to speak the truth in love courageously and and without fear. So, I mean, there's a time in the world when people uh, bearing the name of being a Christian were hurling around a lot of judgment and uh, condemnation and, and things. And so, you know, the Orthodox ethos is much more, poetic and, and, and filled with restraint. And, you know, we're taught to, uh, uh, confess ourselves, uh, myself as the chief of sinners. And, you know, that's a much safer road. Yeah. Um, so there's, a, there's a beautiful humility there, um, which is just to me is the most beautiful thing in the world. I mean, when you mentioned, let's say St. Silouan, the Athenite or St. Paisios or these saints, you read their, their writings and there's this, this divine grace that's jumping off the page, uh, emphasizing Christ-like humility and love for one's enemies. But that doesn't mean that we're supposed to um, always be silent. Of course. When you look at the the history of Christianity, we look at the fathers of the church and many different stories, you know, there's great uh, courage and bravery uh, and and speaking um, the truth in very difficult times. Yeah. So it's looking for that balance. I agree. I love the idea. If I put a beautiful plate down in front of you, you can't see the spices. You can't see the salt, mm-hmm. but you can taste it and you know the salt's in there. It doesn't have too much. If you can see the salt on your plate, you have salted it too much. You are probably a fanatic. Yeah. You're killing that plate. But the salt properly adjudicated yes. is unseen, but... It's in that's, the a good, that's, a, that's a very good way to put it. Yeah. yeah. And I want to be there, but you barely can see. You can mm-hmm. taste. I think that's that's one way to think of it. But so let's end with this. I got to know you this way with the ortho, through the Orthodox Arts Festival and Ioannis. He connected us, which is a real blessing. I want to thank him. Did you submit for the Orthodox Arts Festival? Did you? Were yeah, you- I did. Yeah, I was, I was, um, you know, sent kind of an invitation to submit something. So I did. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, I'm excited about this, um, just primarily because, um, again, uh, orthodoxy and the arts are, 
they're made for each other. Yeah. You know, this is, um, I, I, you can't imagine, uh, I can't imagine the faith without, without it being expressed in beauty. Yeah. Yeah. I tell, I tell folks, and you know this and everybody knows this, it's, it's not unique what I'm trying to say, but for the initiative, the, the uninitiated walking into an Orthodox church where there's four chanters who know what they're doing versus four chanters who don't. I'm sorry, but it matters. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> it, it just matters. It doesn't mean that the four chanters are bad people. They're doing their best. Yeah. Um, but we ought to strive to provide that space where people can be prayerful. Yeah, I love that. Absolutely. I mean, it's a great point because we wouldn't, um, I don't think most people would be okay if, if the iconography was, <laughs> you know, point. I mean, it's like you'd walk and you go, this is not okay. I mean, <laughs> wait a minute. You know, so. Uh, like Bill, Bill's daughter did that. Wait a minute. Who's Bill's <laughs> daughter exactly? Well, Bill's daughter can sing. Put her in there. I'm yeah. like, well, hold on a second. And again, you know, um, that's not to say, um, look, oftentimes these things happen out of necessity. And, and it's finding that balance yes. too, because, yes. you know, when, when there's a church that doesn't have, you know, trained chanters and the people are going up there with love and humility. Yes, brother. And yes. I, I really believe that what the angels are hearing and what God is hearing is, is perhaps even more beautiful. Yeah. Um, you know, there was a, a priest sent us a photo recently from Ukraine, uh, a, a kind of a war torn part of Ukraine. And it was a picture of a priest and where they are, they don't have enough money or funds or anything to have an iconostasis, you know, where all the, the icons are. So the priest asked the children to, to draw icons and they put all of the children's no way. icons up as an iconostasis. And to me, I was, I thought this is perhaps the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Right. What else would, so, you know, so it's both. And again, it's both. And again, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, where we have the ability uh, or the resources to to strive to create something beautiful for God, I think it's 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 a uh, we have to, you know. Um, yeah. Again, whether that's icons or or the chanting or all of the it, church building. Yeah, yeah, the architecture, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, we also come with our five loaves and two fish oftentimes, and we go, you know, this is all I have. That's right. um, and, and God does something, you know, miraculous with it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, th that's a comforting thing, you know. Yeah. Well, let's, let's end it here. Is there anything you want to tell us about that you're doing that you really want to know that I haven't already touched on? I know you're going to go on tour. You've just written a book. Yeah. I mean, the only other development that's taken place, um, and it's, you know, very relevant to a topic on the arts, is um, I was invited to uh, partner with St. Athanasius College um, in uh, developing the first Orthodox film school. So um, we just, we've just started making announcements about it now. It's uh, Theodia uh, College of Filmmaking. And it's going to be in the Houston, Texas area. Uh, it's going to be a four-month program. 
And the first, uh, the first cohort starts uh, beginning of January 2022. So it'll be January through um, most of April. And, um, and I, I'm, I'll be there in residence. So I'm going to be kind of, you know, basically uh, walking through things with Fantastic. the students. And, you know, if from hopefully, God willing, from a, a patristic perspective on beauty, goodness and truth, in the arts, you know, with acting, screenwriting, and filmmaking. So, Fantastic. yeah. Okay, we'll keep an eye out, and I'll do some. Well, I, we'll have links to your site and and to the band, and uh, I hope that tour is wonderful. We're doing a, a benefit concert in uh, down in Florida, December three four. We hope, you know, with COVID. Well, I wish you the best. Thank I, you so much. I, I honestly, it, it's just been a real joy to talk. I feel like I hope we get to meet in person someday and, you know, have a coffee and whatnot. I feel I could talk to you for hours. Can we try that? Because I do feel a lot of love here, man. I, I'm not just being a cheesy Orthodox bro guy. I, I actually, I do this. Yeah. But this was, this was nice. I feel like we could, we could keep talking. So Put me on your list and when all this ends. I travel a lot. I just got back from Mozambique because for our work, our nonprofit work. And so there's ways that we could catch up. And, um, yeah. yeah. I'd love to have you involved with, with what we do too because I think you would really like it. So, okay, brother. Um, thank you for your time. Yeah. Same to you. We'll talk soon. Jonathan Jackson was with us. Thank you, Jonathan. Shenis Gagimarjos. To you, Jonathan, the victory. That's often said at the Georgian Supra, or sometimes called a capy. Thank you for coming along today on the show. Waktar is produced by Andrew Schwark and Daniel Paternos, both of who served in First Things as field workers, one in Guatemala, one in Sierra Leone. First Things is a nonprofit. That's the one here that's behind the scenes of Watar, where we send folks to live for two years in some of the world's most interesting, isolated, and often impoverished places on Earth. There, we create momentum for local changemakers, people who already know what they need, it's just they've got no one to talk to about it. We help those folks by identifying them and giving our lives for two years to assist in beautiful local projects. Share Wattar with a friend. Hit us up with solid reviews on iTunes. Not from these. Hasta luego. Come bufo. Peace out.